So, Berto, I went to Facebook just before recording this podcast and asked everyone on our Facebook page what they wanted us to talk about. I threw out a question like, I'm about to record with Umberto. What would you like us to talk about? Oh, that's about? a good idea. Yeah, and I thought I would get, you know, five, uh, you know, sure. questions. But we got, like, many, many questions. What? So let's get into that's cool. it. cool. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, a professor, and a person who is a bit of a completist, so I might try to answer all your questions. <laughs> who are you, bro? My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I train people that want to learn real Harry Potter spells. So the first question here is from J.J. Parker. J.J. writes, compulsive buying disorder, question mark. Berto, go for it. Comp- I've never heard of such a thing. Oh, my God. Yeah, we've talked about this in the past. This was one of my main psychological issues that I had to deal with um, in, you know, when I started therapy and things like that. Uh, I grew up in a household that had no extra money. And uh, so I, I guess I saw two different competing things. One was in my house, there was never extra money. So if I wanted something, I couldn't get it, right? That was one. Even further, if I got something, a lot of times it, it en- ended up disappearing because like my dad would sell it or something. And then the other model, which was my mom lived far and she would send, she would shower me with material goods, you know? And so I guess implicitly, I kind of took away, okay, if you've got money, you got to spend it right away and actually spend more than you have. And two, that's kind of how you buy love, <laughs> right? And so when I started working in high school, I remember I started making a little bit of money. And in high school, you know, I lived with my parents, so I I didn't have a lot of expenses. You know, I lived with my mom and my stepdad and, and they, they had good jobs. So we, you know, I, we had food, we had, I could borrow her car. And so mostly I started having dispensable income. I could go to the movies. I could, it wasn't that much at first. But well, then, so fast forwarding to when you're, you have a good job. Yeah. At, Cause then, at, at your, then I started working in, in magic and teaching people spells and stuff. And all of a sudden, the money starts rolling in. Right. You have a lot more money than you need. Yeah. Way more than the, the than what I need, or at least way more than I think I need because I'm not even thinking of savings and things like that. Yeah. And so I would go to the mall and I'd walk by a store and I'm like, oh, you know what? It's been a while. It's been like a week since I've bought clothing. So I'm going to buy some clothes, right? And I'd walk in and it would start, this little voice inside my head would start, hey, what are you doing? Do you, do you really need more shirts? And then a louder voice would be like, shh, shh, of course I need. I, not only do I need more shirts, I, I have to have more shirts. What, what need do you think you were meeting? Um, there were probably at least a couple. One of them was this feeling of, I finally can get stuff I want. So it was like the dam had burst. Yes. And you're... 18 and you're living on your own and you can buy all the candy you want. Yeah, no one no one's there to stop me. Number 1. Number 2, there was a little bit of shame because I I remember being in the store and I didn't want the attendant, the uh, person helping me to think I couldn't afford all this stuff. Yeah. So I'm like, "Oh. Oh, the, and it's like imagine the pretty woman scene, but no one was ever rude to her." So instead, it's just like, imagine someone, she walks in, they're like, oh, how can we help you? He's like, oh, yeah? Well, I'll show you. Wait, what? 
And so then internally, I'm like, oh, well, I should buy even more stuff. Interesting. And they would show me like, well, these shoes. And they're like, the, granted, these are more pricey, so you could get these other ones. And I'd be like, oh, no, no, I'll take the, I'll take the most expensive ones, right? And that would just be, so those, those, those two aspects. One of them was, I finally can do this. I can do whatever I want. And the other one was, oh, I'll show them. I can totally afford this. Yeah. Yeah, I find, I've treated a lot of people with this problem and it can be that. It can also be a personality issue in that they, and I don't know if this is a factor for you, will have acquired from childhood a rebellious secretiveness, so to speak. Because some people, it becomes where they take out credit cards in their spouse's names. And oh, okay. They rack up debt and this kind of stuff. Definitely, that was not my problem. Yeah. I mean, it did get bad for you, though, right? It did. And where, where, it, where it started getting... Uh, really bad later on was I started then mixing in that other aspect that I was talking about, the buying love with money. So as an example, I would, I remember one year for my birthday, I invited like everyone from work. There were like 30 people or something. And I paid for the entire thing. Oh my God. It was this massive dinner. And most of those people couldn't care if I lived or died. Many of them didn't like me, but they were there and, you know, and I was like also for your birthday like, or something. Yeah. And I was a lot of their boss, like I was their boss and not all of them, but many of them. And so they probably felt obligated to come and I paid for the whole thing. It must and, have been thousands of dollars. Oh, it probably was. And I was like, yup, that's what I do. And, and I remember one of my friends that actually is kind of like the, the joke, the fool in my storyline. He, he made fun of me there. He's like, oh, I see you're just buying your love or something like that. And I'm like, ha, 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 good one. But I really was trying to do that. Yeah. So with other people, they will be doing it partially out of a transference. I mean, you, you kind of alluded to it a little bit. You were uh, projecting onto these salespeople a thought in their head that you were rebelling against, whether or not mm -hmm. they had it or not. So you, you were inserting a thought into their head that right. may not have been there. It probably wasn't in there, honestly. Right. And if it was, who cares about what, right. what some random salesperson thinks? Well, because what I've actually found more often is they want you to buy stuff. They want to sell you stuff. Right. They're not trying to poo-poo you away. Right. They're trying to be nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a lot of them aren't on commission, so they don't right. really care what, right. you know. But uh, some other people will have a different transference in that the their spouse is someone who they're responsible to in terms of their their finances, right. right? And because they acquired a transference from childhood where they were never able to rebel against their parents or their rebellion was complicated by something, abandonment or abuse mm. or something, that they have you know, retained into adulthood this underground rebelliousness that needs to express itself. Well, and I definitely did that against myself because... I, I do remember having all these little debates about, well, okay, so if you buy this, you have to put it on the credit card. And, like, you don't, where are you actually going to pay that off from? Like, which source of money? It's all in my head, right? And in my head, I go, what do you mean? I'll get more money next month. It's fine. Shh, be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, I do it. And sure enough, now, for some crazy reason, it always did work out. And that was the other thing that wasn't helping me. Because, I never did. I never defaulted on credit cards. I never, like, I never didn't make payments. It almost always, no, it always, it always worked out. 
Right. And that didn't help me see that I was heading in the wrong direction. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the reason why is because you had extravagant tastes when it came to, shall we say, mid-level buying things, but you've never had extravagant case, ex- extravagant taste when it comes to the big purchase items like how- sure. houses and cars. That's fair. I didn't go out and buy a, a car, a Ferrari or something. Right. And I, but, but like your cars have always been extremely sensible. Sure. Yes. That's and right. your houses have been very right. sensible too. Right. You know? Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't. <clears throat> the, the 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 part where it started getting really bad was when I started getting into ex- expensive music gear later. This was towards the end of it. That like my last. Yeah, I remember when I met you. You had bought Beatles replica yeah. preamps. Yeah. From Germany or something. Yeah, yeah. crazy shit. <laughs> and I was like. I don't even own a preamp. Yeah, like yeah. I've just always gone straight into the computer, you know. And, and the the lie I was telling myself it was two lies. One of them was, well, I can't make a good sounding music without the most expensive shit. Yeah. And the second one was, uh, it's okay. Like I'm not buying a ton of stuff. I'm first of all, I'll buy some of this stuff and I'll sell it if I don't need it. Well, and it was correct me if I'm wrong, throwing money at anxiety. Yeah, you were worried about not being successful. Yep. And it's like, well, money often solves problems, yeah, yeah. so let's do it. And it, it was kind of trying to eliminate every possible variable, except like practice really hard and try really hard. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Next question from JJ again: Black Friday mob mentality. What do you think, bro? I've never got this one. You know, I I see it. I've seen. I know people that get into that whole thing. It 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 really. Uh, first of all, I get very irritated with large crowds. It's almost like. Uh, What's uh you know when you're afraid of being enclosed in a claustrophobia? Small, claustrophobia, yeah, and and just the thought of like, oh, there's a deal this Friday. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna rush the store. It's gonna go crazy. Well, it's kind of counter to your other problem of wanting, <laughs> of wanting to splurge. And- there's definitely that. And also, I like. I will say the times that I've done similar things is like, and you know this, like I stood in line for the opening of a movie, or I stood in line for yeah, the, episode one Star Wars, right? Or I stood in line. And how long were you in line? Like overnight? <laughs> oh God, all day? No, no, no. We got there like like at 6 a.m. in the morning. Mm. And it was like at 6 p.m. It was like 12 hours. Uh, but I've also stood in line for the release of new consoles, like gaming consoles and things like that. Really? I don't do this anymore, but I used to. Interesting. But 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 something like, it's Black Friday. We got to go get the deals at, at a Walmart or whatever. I've never quite understood that. Well, so what I'll say to this is there are two things at play here. One is is the media completely overblows the problem. Okay. You know, when you think of Black Friday, you think of mobs fighting yes. over a TV right. at a Walmart or something. Yeah. And yeah, that happens. Obviously, there are videos of it, but it is extremely rare. Okay. If you filmed anything, <laughs> it would seem like it's a common. You, there, there would be. There's things that happen. You know, <laughs> yeah, people. Some people are assholes. Yeah. Um. I uh, wanted to make a bet on a football game recently, uh-huh. and I don't know if I should be announcing this because I don't know if it's exactly legal, but I needed to buy Bitcoin in order to do that, and I've never bought Bitcoin uh-huh. before. Um, and so I had to and – and, and it was the day of the Apple Cup, which was you yeah. know, on a Friday, which was Black Friday. Apple Cup was on Black right. Friday. And so I had to find Bitcoin, and, and the only, I was this long odyssey, but eventually the internet led me to a mall around Seattle. 
and I'm like, crap, I have to go to the mall on Black, <laughs> Black Friday to, to buy right. um, you know, Bitcoin from this ATM machine. That makes sense because I own a little bit of Bitcoin and you can't just electronically on the same day. It's impossible. Right. It takes unless, like- you, unless you go to one of these ATM machines. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And so I am like, geez, you know, and it was a pain in the ass because there's traffic yeah. and I actually had to park like across the street at a strip mall and walk in and stuff. And I'm like, man, it's going to be a madhouse, right? <laughs> and and in the mall, it just looked like a busy day, but it wasn't right. anything unusual, you know? And so, so one thing is like, it's totally overblown. The other thing that I'll say is that when you are living in a materialistic culture and you are of low class, meaning you don't have a lot of money or power in the world, then you're taught that your success in life is based on acquiring better and more mm, expensive things. Right. And when there are sales that are advertised and the, you know, the, the difference between you moving forward and up the ladder uh, comes down to you grabbing something out of someone else's hands or waiting in line and sort of rushing in with yeah. the crowd, then you're, you're going to do that. The other thing I'll say is that whenever I hear people complaining about Black Friday, it's always middle class and upper class people. I never hear lower class people complaining about it. It is, uh, it is a masked classist complaint. That's uh, funny. Middle class people love to, you know, everyone, oh, Black Friday, crowds, blah, blah, blah. It's just like, like me. <laughs> it's just like this massive excuse to beat up on the lower classes. Oh, I feel terrible now. Why are people waiting in line when you're, you know, uh, casually shopping oh. the shit out of the internet? You know what I mean? Oh, I feel terrible. You, uh, <laughs> middle class... What's upper, wrong with you poor people? <laughs> yeah, middle class, upper class people are undoubtedly more materialistic than lower yeah. class people. They, you know, you buy more shit. You, you just do so in an upper class, That's mi- disgusting. Middle, middle class. I should manner. walk up to those lines and be like, get a job, Al. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, all right, now, last one from JJ. Holiday stress and depression. What do you think, bro? Okay, this one I can relate to. Um, I de- this is definitely the stress part. Oh my gosh. There are years in which I've put so much pressure on myself around like the Christmas time frame to buy like buy the gifts and wrap the gifts and part of it is um I have this tradition I do with a buddy of mine. It's now 28 years of this tradition. And for Christmas, uh we give each other gifts. The gifts themselves are like a simple thing, but they're wrapped in the most elaborate ways. His thing, his shtick is he'll do like these massive wrapping jobs with false bottoms and like glue and cement and wrap all this crazy stuff, right? <clears throat> and it takes me forever to like undo. My thing is, as you could probably guess, is scavenger hunts, like, like puzzles and things he's got to solve. We've been doing this for 28 years. Um, but so I put a lot of effort into that. And there's been definitely Christmases where I'm cramming. How, how how long are these scavenger hunts? Uh, well, to actually for him to do it, for me to prepare it. for him to do it. Oh, it takes about an hour, maybe. Oh, like yeah, multiple locations. It's just in the house. Usually. In the house, okay. there's times where I've had it in the neighborhood, but usually it's con- confined to the house. Yeah. Okay. But the point is that leading up to this, a lot of times I don't yet have the idea, and there's been Christmases where the idea hits me the night before. And it's like this elaborate thing. And so I'm working and I'm, I'm, I'm up all night working on this thing. And then like 
6 a.m. hits and I haven't wrapped any of my other gifts. And then my mom gets up at like 7 and she's like, okay, we're going to do gifts at like after breakfast. And I'm like, I haven't slept. I haven't wrapped. Oh, God. And this was, I mean, this hasn't happened to me in the recent years, but this is definitely like high stress, high stress. Um, and I can relate to the general anxiety of like, Holidays are coming. Another year's gone by. What happened to the year? Like, you know, sometimes Thanksgiving rolls up on you and you thought it was still summertime. And that can be a little hard to process. Yeah. Uh, I want to get back to actually uh, just touch on a, a little bit more of what JJ was asking about in terms of the mob mentality of, of uh, Black Friday, because that's probably what JJ is asking about. Um, yeah, when you are in a crowd of people, the crowd mentality or the what the crowd wants, what the collective crowd wants will infect your mind. So you put a I imagine there are people who go to Black Friday mobs and are like, "Okay, I'm not going to get in a fight with anyone. I'm just going to I'm just going to walk through and see what kind of deals I get, and if I don't get any deals, I'm not going to break my back." And as the doors are about to open and people are getting more excited and the buzz is in the air right. and people start running in, it's very tempting to, uh, to give in to that mob mentality. It, the, the, anal- or the analogous situation that I think of usually is when you go to sports games or any kind of crowd game and they have those T-shirt cannons and they, sh- they you know, fire yeah. the T-shirt into the crowd, the crowd goes nuts Yep. Typically, they go crazy. And these, some of these events will be like, you know, upper class, middle class people at like a Seahawks game or something. Yeah. Tickets are $200, $300. And these people are clamoring and grabbing and, you know, right. grasping for arguably a $5 t shirt that they'll never wear that they don't even know what it looks like or if it fits them. <laughs> and because the crowd, because, you know, you introduce this element of who's going to get the T-shirt, and it it just takes over this crowd. Yeah. Whereas if you walked up to someone after the game and said, "Here's a random T-shirt, please take it," they'd be like, "No, <laughs> I'm not going to carry that dumb thing around. I don't I I don't want a dumb T-shirt. Uh, I don't know what it says. I don't know if it fits me. Get out of my face." Especially if you threw it at their face, <laughs> right? But but I mean, th- so this is another thing. I absolutely have always had a thing against crowd mentality. For example, in, in even when it's not in real time, like we've talked a little bit about how uh, when like grunge came out or things like that. Like I, I've, I've always kind of really had a dislike of movement. Like, oh, everyone's into grunge now. Okay, great. Let's be into grunge. But especially in person, if I'm in a place like Disney or something and I see a huge crowd of people gathering towards something, I go the other way. Right, like the only exceptions I could think of something like this is if literally it's like, "Hey, Paul McCartney is here and he's going to give music lessons to the first fifty people." Like, yeah, maybe then I'll trample over people. Yeah, but almost in every other case, I don't want anything to do with it. Yeah, so it's just something weird. And so, like when you're in a concert and you see that, I always get turned off. I'm like, ah, oh, this is such a weird like like I I almost see ourselves as lemmings just running off the cliff, right? And I, it, it scares me a little bit because there's these implications about how historically crowds and mobs have acted impulsively and without 
conscience, essentially. And so maybe it's an implicit reminder of those kinds of things, and I don't like it. Makes sense. So getting to holiday stress and depression, it's a bit, it's a bit of a myth that depression increases during the holidays. It actually, on average, doesn't really. And if it does, it's a minor signal. People's depression tends to be persistent regardless of the seasons. Mm-hmm. There's also a myth about the seasons having a tremendous effect on depression, and that's not true. Yeah, either. I always thought like the rainy season or something. Not true. When they actually look at people's depression rates. Now, for some people, they might hate the weather in Seattle, for example, but that's different than depression. You hey, know? Kirk, in a movie, when you see the rainy scene, that looks depressing. It's a sad thing, yeah. So there's that. And now, that this isn't to say that people don't get depressed during the holidays because they, they might. But there's an equal amount of people who actually have their depression lifted during the holidays because mm-hmm. of you know, whatever factors. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this. If your mother died this year, then the holidays will be the first holidays you are without, yeah, your, mo- totally. your, without your mother, for example. Um, also, there's a lot of people who aren't Christian yeah. who have to endure this. Like, like I, I actually walked into Antioch today, and we share uh, the lower floor of our building is a mm. bank. Oh. And so the, I think it's a bank, but we're on the upper two floors. And so I walk in the building, and I see these employees putting up a Christmas tree. Hmm. And I'm like, what the fuck? Uh, just a blatant <laughs> Christian endorsement, you know what I mean? And I was like, oh, that's the bank. Uh, but then I was like, but still, <laughs> you know, like, what? Uh, you know. Is that is that Christian, though? Well. I mean, I guess it is associated with it. But but the it, weird thing is. Like, if, I, if I was Jewish. Yeah. Or atheist or Jehovah witness for that matter. Yeah. Then I would be like, I would, I would look at that as, um, exclusionary, you know, I'm sure a lot of people cope with it. You know, Jewish people cope with it every, every season. Right. I guess my, my perspective might be different because growing up in Colombia when I was a kid, uh, Christmas trees were not a thing. We happened to have one because my because we, cause we had spent some time up here. But but by the way, my Christmas tree in my house in Bogota was one of those tiny little aluminum silver trees mm. with the little spindly little things. Yeah. And But the thing we did have is we had a nativity scene. That was the main piece of resistance. But it wasn't a tree. It was a, and uh, it was always the – we did the La Novena, which was like the nine days leading up. And we sang Villancicos, which are the – the very spiritual songs every night, like the, what do you call them? The carols. Carols. Yeah. And it, and it was, there's no Santa Claus. It was baby Jesus brought you the toys. Oh yeah. And it was at midnight of the 24th. Like a little baby Jesus, little baby Jesus brought you the toys. Like a toddler, not toddler, a baby Jesus. Like floated in or walked in. Well, we never saw him. Oh, he just, uh, your pillow would grow and then underneath there would be, so there was no... Your pillow? Yeah, under your pillow you'd find all these gifts. Under your pillow? Yes. How do they shove gifts under your pillow? Baby Jesus is magical. But, you're, so presumably your parents would shove gifts under It was your, baby Jesus, yes. So, but, but you would walk in the room and your pillow would be like super tall. Oh, you'd be out of the room. Right, you wouldn't be in the room. Oh, okay. 
No, because you'd all be downstairs celebrating, and all of a sudden, it's midnight, and then you'd run upstairs, and lo and behold, your pillow would be huge. Wow. And you'd lift it up, and there's all these toys from baby Jesus. Wow. So the thing is, when I came here, the the celebration here to me seems completely secular. There's yeah, it is. It often is. St. Nicholas really is not a thing. It's like, I mean, you're an, you're an atheist. Right. Do you have a Christmas tree? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and I so love it, Santa. It absolutely is, but... It absolutely also is a Christian holiday, yeah, and a and a Christian thing. Yeah, no, and that's fair. so. Yeah. So right. it, it's both. So like, if you're if you're Muslim, you don't celebrate, right? And if you're right Jewish, I mean, maybe you, don't. you do. I don't know, but the point is, is that um, you know, if you are not celebratory of Christmas and you live in an American. Right area, it is going to potentially be kind of a bummer because you're. It's annoying to watch. Yeah. Sure. So tips that I give to people in every holiday season, I always get asked this question. What I tell people to do is really check in with what you want to do because there's a lot of obligations that get uh, pound, you know uh, piled on to people's lives. You have to go home. Maybe you don't want to go home to your to your parents' house. Right. You have to go to a party. Maybe you don't want to go to that party. You have to give gifts at work. Maybe you don't want to give gifts at work. Check in with yourself. Find out what you want to do and try to you know assert that want because there's no reason why you should have to do those things. You know, if it's it means to be a fun time, right? If it means bothering your parents or something, then you know. That's what it means, and that's that's not your fault. Right. Also, another thing is is to focus on connections rather than gifts. With Berto, you and you know, ruining your life Christmas Eve to have a good exchange with this friend is not the point of the gifts. Right. The point of the gifts is the friendship. Right. And focusing on that connection rather than the perfect gift or perfect outfit is the thing that I tell people to do. The other thing I tell people to do is to watch your alcohol and substance use. The holidays can trigger certain, I don't know, avoidance or escapism. And there's a lot of alcohol just around. Yep. And you just want to make sure that you keep an eye on that. Especially if you're a sober person, you might have to avoid certain things. And also keep seeing your therapist. A lot of clients will take breaks from therapy during the month of December and that's not always a good idea. Well, but if you if you're advocating seeing their therapist, if they drink a lot, they'll see two or even three of their therapists. It's true. So let's take a break and when we get back, let's continue answering questions from Facebook. What do you say? Let's do it. All right, we're back from the break. I want to make an announcement that we've already made that we have started a program for a scholarship for uh, a student in mental health. Woo! So because we met our goal on Patreon, we are giving out a $2,000 scholarship to a worthy student. The qualifications are that you must be a current student in mental health with at least 12 months remaining in your education program. You do not have to be a patron or a listener. For the applications, send the following materials to the email, contact at psychologyinseattle.com. You want to send proof of current enrollment in the mental health program. You want to write a five-page essay on why you think you're a good candidate for the scholarship. You want to provide three personal references of people who can comment on the content of your essay. 
This could be, you know, professional or academic people preferred, but it could be anybody really. And the submission deadline is January 31, 2019. The essay should include demonstrated past commitment to making the world a better place, demonstrated need for the tuition money, and future goals for making the world a better place. Also, you should know that if you win, your name and headshot will be published on our website and social media. So if you know of someone or you are someone that fits this bill, because I know a lot of you out there are actually students, apply, uh, because you could be the deserving winner. So Fran wrote on Facebook to asking us about our favorite Saturday Night Live cast members, past and or present. Mm, What do you think? My favorite, probably still Chevy Chase. Really? Yeah. Like, do you go to YouTube and watch Chevy Chase? I mean, I have I have that season on VH, VHS. Really? Yeah. Okay. And and you th- like what skits? Uh, basically, anything he was in was entertaining. But uh, I loved uh, like wasn't he Landshark? I don't know. I think he was Landshark. Um, he did. He did President Ford falling. Yeah. He did the news sometimes. The news was great, man. And he was just like so dry. It was weird because he became he became sort of a a bad version of himself as he got older. Yeah, he's you know? a total dick. I mean, he he is a rena- world renowned asshole. Yeah. I mean, they have recordings of him, like with Dan Harmon. Yeah. Just being a super douchebag. Really? Yeah. Oh, you haven't you haven't looked into that? No, because I've seen the community, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. on the show, he's fine, but behind yeah. the scenes, he's like, uh, like a really abusive, that sucks. angry. I, person. I just I loved him in that. I loved him all. You know, in the vacation, Fletch was amazing. You know, I like. Okay, so I, I'm I, I Chevy Chase. When I was a kid, I loved. Yeah. So I, I grew up with Saturday Night Live. It's sure. been on. You know, I was born before. I don't remember watching it that much when I was a kid, but I definitely saw it and definitely saw Vacation and Fletch and all the Chevy Chase yeah. movies and loved it too. Uh, Caddyshack is great. He's great in Caddyshack. Oh, yeah. Caddyshack, right. Yeah. He's great in Vacation and European Vacation, by the way, and Christmas Vacation, I think. Yeah. But, but Fletch, I... Recently re- rewatched <laughs> it and found it to be not only a terrible movie, but his style of humor in that movie is is like annoying. I, I, it's I basically bought, it's yeah. basically like a a ten year old's version of of humor. I I do not believe you because the time I saw it, I was like fifteen, right? And I liked it. <laughs> so I think it I think it appeals to an extremely 12, ado- adolescent person. Whereas I think Caddyshack, although adolescent, has sort of it, it's still it still sort of shines today, and I think vacation. <laughs> there are scenes in vacation. Those are really that, good. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, to be fair, I I think Fletch. I also read the book, and I really liked the book. Really? Yeah. That's so strange. And so I I don't know at the time which one I liked better, but I remember at the time sort of being like, oh, I love Fletch. Yeah. You know. So for me, this is tough because I am a Saturday Night Live fan in that. Pretty much every day, I will watch at least five archived skits on yeah. on YouTube. Like one of the things that I love to watch is Will Ferrell and I can't remember the woman's name where they do the cheerleaders. The, the cheerleaders, yeah, yeah. It, and then the music ones are really ha good ha kabuchi roll call. <laughs> yeah. you know? And then the ones where they do the the improv music. 
yeah. where they do the medley. Yeah. Those are uh, good, too. So, so to me, uh, my favorite is Will. Is is yeah is is Will Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig. So Kristen mm-hmm. Wiig's another person. So my criteria for because really you got to say John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, uh, Gilda Radner. You know that Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy is after yeah. that. But there are certain classics where you have to say, well, of course th- those are the best, and they're often cited as the best. But to me, for my criteria is who do I click on YouTube when I sure. want to watch an old, an old skit and it's Will Ferrell and Chris, Chris, Kristen Wiig. I can't go wrong. Every single one of those skits, whereas watching John Belushi do the samurai guy, it's like, okay, you know, cheeburger, cheeburger, cheeburger. It's like, okay. I, I totally hear you there. I, part of it, what it is for me is, so you grew up watching Saturday night live. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. The first time I watched Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live, I think, is when I moved here. I was 15 years old, and I went over – it was a Saturday. I went over to a friend's house, and they're like, all right, so we're going to do this, that. We're playing with our bikes, all these things. And then as it got later, it's like, all right, we're going to watch Almost Live and then Saturday Night Live. And I'm like, what? Live what? Live that? What? Right. So for those who don't know, in Seattle, just before Saturday Night Live in the 80s and 90s, we had our own Saturday Night Live that was a Seattle, and it was called Almost Live. It was really good, too. Yeah. <laughs> so I had no idea, and I got kind of confused because live, 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 what's all this live stuff? And then we watched it. And, and Bill Nye was on yeah, that Yeah, Bill show. Nye, the science guy. We watched it, and I loved it. I loved both of them, actually. I, li- I liked the lo-fi version, you know? And, and then when, when I finally saw Saturday Night Live. This was at the time with Dana Carvey, Mike Myers, you know, like really funny stuff, right? Oh, it, it had uh, the, the voice dude who died, uh, Phil Hartman, yeah. all these things, right? Uh, what was Kevin Nealon? Like, it was a great time. Yeah. And so I thought, wow, this is amazing. I think uh, Julie uh, Louis-Dreyfus was on it, too, at that time. Yeah. And so then my buddies were like, oh, you should have seen it back when it started or something. And of course, they didn't watch it back then, but they, they knew about it. And I remember I, you could go and rent... Uh, some VHS tapes from the it wasn't a blockbuster back then whatever it was they had some of the old SNLs and I remember I rented one of the like first season SNL or something like that and and I was like whoa because it seems so subversive yeah. so different and and I loved to me Chevy Chase was like the embodiment of that mentality of like hey we're just going to break some rules here and it's going to be almost like it's not TV and I thought wow I've never seen something like this right yeah so honorable mentions to me are Bill Hader, Chris Parnell, Andy Samberg, Fred Armisen, Mike Myers, Sprockets, Maya Rudolph, Jason Sudeikis, Taron Killam, who doesn't get enough love. He, he, he was on until about five years ago, and he was – every character he did I thought was hilarious, and, I, and I, he just dropped off the face of the earth, and I don't understand why. What was that one? You'd recognize him if you saw him. He was in a lot of skits like from – I don't know, 10 years ago to five years ago. And Will Forte McGruber is hilarious. And actually, currently, I, I love the current, the current crew I find to be some of the funniest people who have ever been on Saturday Night Live. And I think the writers are doing a lot better now, too. 
Kyle Mooney, v- Vanessa Bayer, Cecily Strong, the tall brown haired girl. She's hilarious. Yeah, there there were some years where it really dropped off, right? Yeah, it got really bad, and then I heard it got really good again. Yeah, uh, the Will Ferrell times, the Kristen Wiig times, but I I feel like there was a time in the '90s when I think it it was not doing so well. Beck Bennett, Ida, Ad Bryant, Kate McKinnon um, are all people that. So I think there's a there's a in in the past ten years. I also think that as I get older, for whatever reason, I appreciate it more. I think when I was younger, I was like, well, this isn't very funny. But as I get older, I appreciate the show because I've gone to more live comedy and sure. realize how hard it is. Sure. You know, they have to come up with this show in like the, the, the week prior. Yeah. And they are doing it live, right, obviously. Right. And so to me, it's it's like even if a skit isn't all that funny, I'm like – well, for the constraints, it's hilarious. Yeah. And like, I'll go to improv where, you know, they'll do improvisational stuff. And arguably, it's not that funny. Right. But because it's improv and it's completely spontaneous, I'm on the floor right. barely grasping for air <laughs> because of they came up with that on the fly. Right. You know, right. and so I think Saturday Night Live is sort of in that direction. I mean, they've certainly been hitting it out of the park the last couple of years with all the Trump related stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh Emily, we know Emily. We've yep. met her before. Yeah. She says, What are the benefits of having anxiety? What do you think, Berto? I see the benefits of well, it definitely may keep you safe in some situations because you might be like, I can't go on that you know, car ride across the country because we're going to get robbed and killed. Or I can't uh, take that drug because I'll immediately have an allergic reaction to it. Okay. You know? Uh, One of mine is that I save money on a lot of coffee. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah. uh, No, no, that's what she said. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Wow. Plagiarism (laughs) alert. (laughs) Well, so I'm looking... Okay, so this is a little peek behind the curtains. So I am... I mean, I'm looking at my notes and I'm like, that doesn't sound like something I would say, but I wrote it down. So I have to read it. You have to read it. (laughs) You're like a a newscaster just reading the teleprompter. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. In fact, there is a Will Ferrell skit on SNL about that where, you know, they run the the teleprompters run out and like cut chaos completely. That's like the Anchorman, right? (laughs) Is that from Anchorman? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I thought that was SNL. But yeah, so so she said, what are the benefits of having anxiety? One of mine is I save money on caffeine. Uh, that's hilarious. And it's even uh, more humiliating and hilarious that I thought that was what I wrote down. Because as, as it was coming out of my mouth, I'm like, that, that is not true about me. Why, oh why did I write that down? Anyway. That's so funny. Uh, all right. So uh, benefits of having anxiety. There aren't many, honestly, because anxiety is awful. But the... If I was to really stretch it, I would say that people with anxiety have empathy for other people with anxiety or just um, – I mean, do you do you have anxiety? Do you feel you have anxiety? I used to, for sure. I used to have panic attacks. Oh, we've talked about this. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Um, not a lot, but yeah. it was not pleasant. And right. I think that because of that, actually, it led me to psychology. Yeah. And so I think that's another benefit, I suppose, is it might help you to figure out what you want to do with your life. Um, <clears throat> through treatment uh, with therapists and or self, you might learn emotional awareness and regulation skills that other people don't have. 
but in general, I, I, anxiety just sucks, you know. And anyone who's like, you know, yay, anxiety, it's like you, you could probably say there are good things about having terminal cancer, yeah, right. But it also totally sucks. Yeah. Gabby wrote on Facebook how a therapist profession affects their personal life. Well, I'll answer this one. Uh, I it's hard to know exactly because I was always psychologically minded. But I would imagine that I'm much more self-aware as a result of being a therapist. I'm probably a better communicator. And I'm probably much more aware of my own attachment needs. And, and I focus on attachment needs rather than focusing on silly things like uh, staying up all night and wrapping a present. <laughs> um, so that is my benefits. Vincent wrote... Maybe something about dissociation and de- depersonalization. Yeah, I'll take this one too. Uh, someone else asked me about this recently, de- depersonalization, de- derealization. It's awful. So essentially what happens, for those of you who don't know, is when you're traumatized early in life, say, you know, zero to six, your brain has a number of different choices it can utilized to cope. And we seem to be born with these mechanisms. And one of them is dissociation where your personhood escapes from the situation while your body is remaining. So it's, it's when you're, so say you're being sexually abused by your grandpa Uh, and you, you don't want, you don't want to be there. You don't want to experience that, but your grandpa is bigger and can hurt you. And so your body stays, but your mind goes and early in life, this mechanism is possible. Later in life, it's not. Like, you can't dissociate in general uh, at the age of 25 for the yeah. first time. You, you learn it. We seem to be able to do this early in life. And there are various different forms of this. There's just regular dissociation where you kind of just check out and you're sort of in a daze and you, you, you have a hard time concentrating. Um, and you're not really there, and it takes a while for you to come back into your body. Sometimes people feel like they're sort of floating. And there's also a dissociative identity disorder where your your personality or actually splits into different alters, and different alters will step forward and take the abuse, and different alters will be prote- other alters will be protected from the abuse, and that will be retained into adulthood. All these are retained into adulthood. And another one is depersonalization, where you will go into the back of your mind and you'll feel sort of for a long time. And some people can be in this state for, for weeks where they feel like they're watching a movie of their life happening. Remember in get out when he was watching from afar. Yeah. It was sort of like that. And it's really distressing. Imagine you're walking around in life and you're living your life normally, but you never feel like you're really connected to the world. And it's not just kind of trippy, you know, it's not just yeah. like, ooh, this is weird. It's actually extremely de- depressing and anxiety-provoking and demoralizing and distressing. Dissociative identity disorder is the same way. When people dissociate, when people uh, have dissociative identity disorder uh, depersonalization, it, it's a lot of suffering, and it's really awful. And the treatment is dissociation-focused therapy and trauma-focused therapy, and there's there's ways to deal with it. One in the short term is just learning how to detect it, learning how to ground yourself, how to avoid triggers that make you go into... It's similar to PTSD, and they're often coinciding. 
But in the long term, trauma recovery and habituation to the trauma will often reduce the dissociation to nothing. So there are things you can do, but it takes a long time, and it's really awful. Wow. Uh, Nina wrote The Psychology of David Reamer. Do you know David Reamer? Uh, no. Let me tell you a short story about David Reamer. You might have heard the, you might have heard the story, but re, don't remember the details. So David Reamer, a Canadian man, born male in 1965, and his penis was accidentally destroyed during a botched circumcision as a baby. <gasps> what? And the doctors convinced the parents to raise him as a girl. Wait, how, did, how does that happen? It it happens, you know. There's there's a percentage. It's a known it's a known medical phenomenon that, you know, when you have millions of circumcisions, one out of every ten thousand or something. I don't know the exact stat. Like they just like chopped it or something. Like yeah. God dang. Yeah, I mean a slip of the hands. You know, oh my like God. Yeah. Uh, so at the age of twenty two months, <sighs> so he was raised as a girl at the you know, recommendation of the physicians. I'm oh. guessing to avoid a lawsuit because it's like if they just raised him as a boy, he would have, you know, been like, so at what point am I going to sue those doctors for yeah. mutilating me? At the age of 22 months, his his testes were surgically removed. Oh, no. Oh, and a, and a, a rudimentary vulva was fashioned. A psychologist, John, oh John Money, saw, uh, started to study this kid and was very interested, John Money, psychologist, extremely unethical psychologist, decided to experiment on this kid and see if gender was socializable, you know what I mean? Yeah. That you could raise a boy as a girl and she would, you know, be a girl. Right. And so he tried to force the kid to see himself as female and the family was in on this as well. Thing is, he had a twin brother who was a boy, by the way. Oh my god! And the psychologist forced the twins. Get this. This is bizarre. So you can, so it, we're already like in a horrible zone, right? We're already like Jesus yeah. Christ, oh, yeah. nightmare. But then the psychologist John Money forced the twins. You know, the Brian and yeah. this. Uh, I think I can't remember the, what names that they gave him. Uh-huh. You know. But they forced the twins into rehearsing sexual acts. What? As children. The living hell. Right. Because the psychologist, John Money, was like, well, if I'm really going to force this boy to be a girl, I have to force these two twins into sexual positions. What the hell? How's the logic there? Right. So, <laughs> so he, would, he, would, he would make David go on all fours and act like Brian was fucking... What a from, sick like thrusting and doing asshole. all this asshole at what age? Like like children, you know. Oh like, my god! And John Money reported on his findings, and he because he was a researcher. Was this in the year thirteen hundred? It was in nineteen seventy ish. So he wrote, the child's behavior is so clearly that of an active little girl, and so different from the boyish ways of her twin brother. And by the way, thousands of other children were also raised this way because of surgery problems or unambiguous genitalia. Oh my god! Back in the day, okay, he was given estrogen, and uh, it made him grow breasts, right? And during during his uh, teen years, he was being bullied because he because he looks like a boy. If you see pictures of him yeah. as, as a young kid. 
he has a look of a boy yeah. who has long hair. Yeah. And bo- people would make fun of him. He became suicidal as a teenager. And oh he, you know, he hated the psychology visits. And at some point, age 14, uh, he broke down and his parents just told him the truth. And he said, they said, you were born with a penis. And ah! it, was, it was botched. And so we, we've been raising you as a, as a, ah. as a girl and you, you're actually a boy. And so he decided from that point forward to be male, and he started getting testosterone injections, and oh. he, he had a double mastectomy because he had breasts, and he didn't want those oh anymore. Oh, my God. He had plastic surgery to add a penis, but, you know, that can't be very easy to do. As an adult, he got married, adopted three children. Th- things seemed to be going okay. Uh, and then in 1997, he went public with the story. Rolling Stone Magazine wrote an article. Many, the New York Times wrote articles. The Rolling Stone Magazine article won, the, won an award for that. The New York Times uh, was a best-selling biography at, called uh, As Nature Made Him. The twin brother, Brian, later developed schizophrenia. In 2002, the, the, the twin died from overdose of antidepressants. Oh, my God. And then at the age of 38, which would have been... In the year, so the probably the aughts, I'm guessing, his wife left him, and then he killed himself. Oh, what a horrible, yeah, horrible story! Right, there's a lot of stories like this. What happened to that stupid, the 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 monster, John Money? I think he was. Always, I don't know. I in the story that I looked up, I think he was scot free. You know. Um, because it was a, I, I, well, I don't, I guess I can't speak to that. I didn't see anything written about that, but yeah, he should have been, uh, strung up. And so what can we learn from this? One is, is that our society is fucking stupid when it comes to gender. Uh, and circumcision probably shouldn't be done. It's not necessary. I've, I, I actually have looked into circumcision. Do you know much about it? Uh, no, I mean, just what? No, I don't. I yeah. No. So it's unclear. So there are certain benefits, according to research, that it's clint, clint, more clean, less likely for infection, this right. kind of thing. But you can also, it also is risky. So you could have botched circumcisions yep. or infections from the circumcision itself. Or you can lose all sensation because a nerve is cut or something, even in a quote-unquote successful circumcision. Or your skin could be so tight that you could have problems, you know, later in life. And so there are problems with circumcision and there are problems without it. So the, the general feeling among experts who really look at this objectively is that there's, there's not really a huge benefit to doing it. And if, Doing it leads to situations like this. Right. It's like maybe we shouldn't be doing it. Right. Right. Um, I mean, it's also it's quite interesting. Just it, for I don't know a million years. Yeah. I'm not even talking about gorillas now. I'm just talking about humans. Yeah. For a million years, probably just dealt with their penises as they were. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it was like. Hey, one, one small group of people. One small, it's like, hey, you know what? You know what would be really good? <laughs> I mean, we don't have to deal with like the little cheesy smegma or whatever the hell. So why don't we just chop off the skin? Yeah. 
And then from there on, that became a thing for a portion, and then it grew a little bit. And right. So, so it seems it's so mainstream circumcision right. in America that it's hard to really recognize how weird it is. Yeah. The, to illustrate it, let's say that a small group in Utah decided with all their young girls that, you know, yep. within, within a couple weeks of being born, they were going to cut off a portion of the labia yep. because research shows that that infections, because infections can, sure. you know, and maybe they prove that with this, it, there's slightly less possibility of, right. of infection. It should also be noted that people today are extremely clean. Yeah. So the chance of you getting an infection from a non-circumcised penis is pretty pretty small compared to when we existed, you know, 5,000 years ago. Uh, but let's just say that in Utah, a small group of people started cutting the labia of... Right. Do you know how crazed our country would be about that? Yeah. And yet every day there are young baby boys with their penises being, you know, a portion of their penis being cut off yeah. because of this old, old tradition. Wow. And it's weird. Yeah. And, and, you know, and now if the... From what I understand, the risks are pretty low and there are some benefits. So if you're a parent and you decide to do it, it's, it's really not the end of the world uh, because they have it down to a science now, you know, they, there's the people who do it, do them all day long, I'm yeah. guessing. And so, you know, it's, it's not on the scale of things. It's not that big of a deal, but it is odd. I just think. Yeah. I mean, so one perspective could be like, okay, well, it's definitely not like as nature intended to slice open the mother's belly and pull out a baby. But that's something that is – that's not – they're not doing that for – For aesthetic purposes. Or yeah, something. or a yeah. tradition. They're yeah. doing that because the, – The baby or the mom might die. Right. I, I agree. But, but I, I guess what I'm saying – so I definitely agree with that. At the same time, clearly we do some things in modern times that are not quote-unquote – as nature intended. Right, but that's not the criteria. It's not, is this what nature intended? That's, that's not the criteria. The criteria is, is it medically necessary? Do the benefits outweigh the, the risks? That's always the, the question. Well, and maybe it's because it's a little baby that doesn't have a say in the matter. But and, certainly, that's the, and that's the other question that is, yeah. does the individual having this procedure done on them have a, do they, sure. you know, can they opt in or out? And so... Those two questions are obviously like, well, the benefits actually don't outweigh the the uh, the cost. Yeah, they're, they're pretty much equal. So, and you don't need to do it. There's right. there's not a huge reason to do it because getting a little schmegma because you you yeah. you should have pulled the foreskin back and showered a little bit more isn't the end of the world. So, like, well, how about educating the kids on that front? Right. Yeah. <laughs> just, just it takes two seconds to teach a child. Right. Like, hey, when you're in the shower, do the following. Pull back. Clean. You're set. Right. The and the other thing is is how many people like this kid who had this happen to him uh, would have opted out of the surgery if, of given, course, if yeah. given the choice. So so that's so that's one thing we can see. The other thing we can see here is. Uh, so circumcision is an issue here. Gender is an issue here. Uh, and I just find it just bizarre. It's like, uh, I, I don't know. I don't even want to get into it, but yeah. I, I just, I find it so weird. I, uh, I just, I'll put my foot in my mouth, I'm sure. But anyway, um, the other thing we can see here is that without oversight of ethical practices in research, this is what happens. And 
we kind of saw the worst of it up until the 70s. You had the Zimbardo Stanford prison experiment, Mm -hmm. ethical nightmare. You have this example and many other examples. And then in the 80s, 90s, we started to uh, institute a lot of really strict rules on research ethics, and you don't see stuff like this anymore in the Western world. Like that shock experiment, that was also questionable. Well, yeah, but less of a problem because you're talking about the Milgram experiment. The person being shocked was not being shocked. Oh, am I? Oh, yeah. No, it's that the other people thought they were shocking. Them, it's right? still a little problematic in that you're putting someone through a experiment in which they have they're being asked to and often did to harm a person, harm yeah. another person, which is traumatic yeah, to, yeah. to that person. That's a good point. So you shouldn't do that anyway. But yeah. but anyway, yeah. So you can't do stuff like that anymore for okay. for good reason. As I should, maybe what I confused. I recently watched Ghostbusters again, and you know, at the beginning of the movie, he's shocking. Doctor Bankman is shocking me. <laughs> All right, so let's answer one more question. Uh, April, we all know April. April, who Woo! is helping run the fan page along with Lyndon and Emily? I think Emily is now on board. She's stepping up to the fan page. Yeah. Uh, April asks the psychological effects of leaving a religion you were raised with, Birdo. What wow. psychological effects? Psychological we, we gotta, effects. We don't have a lot of time, so just keep it to the psychological effects. It's traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's tough, man, because you you basically are are there's something in your head that feels as real as anything else you you believe is real, and that that the main message is if you don't do blah, you will f- like pay the ultimate consequences for all of eternity. And yet you have all these other signals saying, but maybe I should go in this different direction. And there's a lot of societal pressure, family pressure and things. And so I often equate it and maybe unfairly so, but I often call it like coming out of the closet about your, your beliefs, you know, because it is intimate. And what's, what would my parents say? What would my family say? And, and, and then you almost, for me, there's also this aspect of like, but what if I break their heart? Because like, that's what they believe, and you know, so it's yeah. really tough. Yeah, it's it's a complicated topic. There are lots of different versions. There's your version that you're talking about. There are other versions where the religious community is fine with it. They're just like, oh, okay, that's cool, whatever. And there's somewhere you can get killed. And there's places you can get killed. And there are places where you'll be disowned. There are other people who just kind of drift away and there's and they don't really even notice that they've drifted away until (laughs) it's like 20 years later and they're just like oh i guess i don't really believe anymore or something and so so there's a lot of different paths psychological effects again it really just depends on the person i think there are a lot of interesting phenomenon that happen with people i find that people in my circle in seattle there's a lot of people who were raised christian and don't identify as such anymore. And I find that they unknowingly are still very Christian. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, the the basic premises of Christianity are still with them, but they don't really state it as such. Like stone a, stone a person that does <laughs> yeah. the right things? Or... <laughs> well, like, like the universe is fair, for example. You know, that's a... That's a Christian belief that God is watching mm-hmm. and bad people will get bad things and good people will get good things. Oh, like is it kind of like a karmic retribution well, kind of thing? Well, that it's I'm glad you brought that up. So 
Americans who were who were vast majority race Christian have a total bastardized understanding of what karma means. Sure. To to Americans, what karma means is what you said. Yeah. But that's actually a Christian belief that they've that they've grafted on the term <laughs> karma. The term karma in in India is very different from that. Uh, you know, newsflash, you know, adopting a very complicated Eastern philosophy notion is not always understood by us, right? right? Karma is much more having to do with just kind of like your fate or how, you, how to sit. I, I'm going to bastardize it too, but from what I understand, it's more like the, the weave between fate and your decisions yeah. and how your life is kind of already, uh, you know, uh, planned out before you by yeah. the universe, and you also will play a role in that. It's yeah. it that is your karma. Um, but so huh. that's a classic example of just like people walking around going like, "Ooh, bad karma, good karma. I got bad karma. I got good karma." You know, all that kind of stuff. It's like, no, you're just you're just using, which is fine, I suppose. But yeah. you're still using a Christian belief system where God and Jesus do good things to good people and bad things to bad people. Well, I actually. It depends on on which model, because if you're more on the Catholic or more traditional side, it is more karmic in in the real sense, because you're thinking, no, there is a path for you that you have some choices in, but ultimately, you're not going to get retribution in this life. You're going to get some answer in the next life. Whereas, but, but... That's not true of all aspects of, of Christians. I mean, in fact, many of my friends in high school believed a lot more in, in demon warfare and in immediate consequences in this life. So they, they really believed, like, you know, because they believed in miracles, right? They believed you absolutely pray, things happen, you, and then demons are interfering and all these things. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, a, there's a, a, a part of this belief system that is definitely, like, if you do something bad right now, in a week, something bad might happen to you. Right. So the psychological effects are pretty numerous. You know, being raised in a certain uh, mentality and a certain group, there are a lot of things. For example, with me, I grew up in a Christian church that was, from my memory, fairly liberal. At least I don't remember politics being talked about. And when I and when it was talked about, I remember looking at those people and saying, "You're weird. Like, why are you bringing politics into this?" Like, I was playing the song "Imagine" with my friend on yeah. the piano in church, and this this new woman who had just joined the church walked over and said, "Oh, that's a devil song because <laughs> he talks about there's no heaven above right. us, no hell below." And we just kind of looked at her and were like, "You're dumb. This is a beautiful song, <laughs> and you know, you know, uh, he's just." Listen to the whole song. Right. Like, that's not what he's saying. He's not, like, anti-religion. He's just like, imagine if we all got along. That is, like, the central premise of right. our version of Christianity. Like, don't worry about religion. Worry about love and getting right. along with me. Don't worry if other people believe in God or not. It's about loving each other. And so that felt, that was the vibe, and I, I was a part of a youth group, and we would get together, like, once or twice a week, and there was a lot of talking about emotions and feelings and yep. together, you know, being together and self-reflection. And, you know, it was, it was basically group therapy when I was like 13 years old. Yep. And I, I think that that had an effect on me. I had a good youth group too, at the church I went to in Tacoma. Um, I should say before I moved up here, I never went to church because my dad wouldn't allow it. But up here I started going to church and I, I had a good youth group. I, I had a good youth 
what do you call it? Youth minister or youth pastor or whatever. And that's where I met one of my best friends, Ty Verzoni. Ty Verzoni was in my ah, youth group. Good looking Ty. Yeah, good looking Ty. And we, we had a lot of fun times. And it was pretty well-meaning and pretty healthy environment, actually. Cool. Well, we only got about, uh, I don't know, uh, one-tenth through the question. So I guess we'll have to save them for another time. What do you say, Berto? Yep, we will. <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Again, if you know of anyone who can apply for the uh, scholarship, email us at contact at com to inquire. And that does it for that episode. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it.